Let's start. I want. I'm gonna. I want to hold on. I want to get Bob and Karen back in, or Chuck and Lori. What Connie's saying. Hi, Chuck. Good to see you again. Thank you, Fritzy. Hi, Bob. Hi, Karen. <laughs> Connie just made a comment that she was she watched Lear, an old performance last week, and I think she was a little bit surprised and maybe embarrassed. I don't know, but she she said that it was it was so easy following it, you know. And I want to pick that up for a minute because I think there's a profound wisdom and um, changes in the modern world make us lose it, and I don't want to lose it for a second. So there are three genres, the lyric, drama, narrative. We hear the hear lyric all the time, popular songs coming out of Hollywood, right? The entertainment music is centered on these pop singers who have these lyrics. Shakespeare wrote, wrote lyrics, Dunn wrote lyrics. We've been, we've been starting our classes with lyrics, but people don't make the connection between these written lyrics that we read and popular songs. A lot of the songs that we hear will not survive our time. They're just not good enough. Yep. You know? But if you read Dunn or Shakespeare or Hopkins, you're reading lyrics that will be timeless. People will be reading them hundreds of years from now. They're just extraordinary works of literature. <coughs> Remember, the narrative was an oral tradition. Originally, Homer sat down and sang his song in the presence of a group. So did Virgil. Um, in some ways, I think Chaucer did a little bit in his time in a court setting. So the narrative, the epic, was always oral. But after the invention of the printing press and mass-produced works, novels are produced in a written form and people read them at home. So by the time of Jane Austen and Richardson and Trollope and you know Dickens and all those writers, they're reading novels. And you know from Dickens that people couldn't wait un until the next installment when they would get another printed copy of whatever chapter Dickens was working on. Drama is the one odd mode of the three genres, lyric, narrative, drama, because drama has to be performed on a stage, right? That was true for Sophocles with Oedipus. It was true for Aeschylus with the Oresteia. You all have read those now. You've experienced them. It's true for T.S. Eliot's Murder in the Cathedral or um, The Cocktail Party. You know, he's more recent. Um, we will read those together. Murder in the Cathedral is an extraordinary play about martyrdom. It's, it's an amazing play. It's among Eliot's great works. Um, it, it's so important to read that play. It'll, it'll deepen your faith. Uh, and understand what's going on in it. But drama is odd. In drama, we're not in our heads the way we are with novels, and we're not just in our ears hearing a popular song, you know, the way we do when we, I could go on the web or turn on the radio or something. In drama, we have to be present the way we are in church to a performance. And in that performance, Think about this, because Connie's comment, it goes so to the point. When we read a drama, we have no clues. We're in our heads. We're sitting at home in our chair, reading, reading words on a page. They have no body, they have no gestures, and we don't visually see them. But in a stage performance, 
we see them, we watch their gestures, the gestures help us to understand the meaning of a phrase when we don't want to read it on a page, because the gesture will give it away. And their interaction with characters will help explain the scene. So it's the most incarnational, incarnated of the three genres. It's the one that most requires a body. So when we watch a stage play, suddenly lots of things clarify that remain a mystery when we read it on a page. Connie, didn't you find that to be true? Yes, it's just, it's, it's so, I, it's crazy, but I, I'm getting so much more out of the reading the book because I'm seeing it and, and, and actually it follows so well with the Folgers edition. Yeah. Watching it. Yeah. Do you like reading the book first and then watching the play or watching the play first? Why well, I'm actually doing it um, together. <laughs> <laughs> so right now we're just starting. Actually, I didn't want to come on because it's basically in scene five, and things were getting so. Crazy. <laughs> uh, I gotta go to class. Yeah. <laughs> so now I can't wait to go back and finish the rest of it. Was that the nineteen seventy four one? The uh, yeah. the uh, Royal yeah. Shakespeare Company. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Connie, I'm not going to take any of that personally. That you prefer the <laughs> the drama to what you're getting in class here. Um, um, I, I, it's good that when you watch the drama, though, then if you read the book after, yes, then the words come to life. You're, you're visualizing the action. Yeah. Get more out of it. Yeah. That Either way, but but I think yeah, because I when a when we see a play, when we watch a performance, there's no way we can grasp things. You know, we're not thinking about the meaning of things. We're too involved in what's happening in front of us. Um, but when we read a play. I mean, you know, certainly from classes, we're going over a work to try to get to its deeper meanings. You, those can't come to us in a performance. We're too involved in what's going on. It's, a, it's, an, it's an interesting lesson in how important reflection is when we reflect back on an experience. We see more when we reflect on it than at the time of the experience itself. You know that that's true. I mean, it's... Anyway... Um, Sorry? I think seeing it first. Yeah, Doc's, Suzanne's supporting you, um, Chuck. She's saying seeing the play and then reading it because you'll see so much. I think either way, but I, but I think at some point reading it and thinking about what you've experienced will always deepen you know, your, your understanding of something. Um, and Connie, just so you know that most, most Shakespeare performances follow the text word for word literally it's not a Folgers okay. it's not a Folgers edition it's Folgers and Signet and all of them give you Shakespeare's play the way it was um, because it's gone through sec centuries of scholarly work on you know straightening things out Sometimes but plays plays generally almost always follow the script one of the reasons I I am wary of going to Shakespeare plays is because often um, art or artists and directors want to modernize it. You know, they'll take Shakespeare and put Shakespeare in New York, modern New York, or a ghetto, or, you know, they'll do something like that. And and I understand why they're doing it. I, I think there's probably a good in that to make it relevant so that people feel that Shakespeare is relevant. I also think... Um, 
there's an undermining. They, they take away part of the meaning in doing that. When we, when we do a Winter's Tale, I'm going to recommend a, um, a, a video production. I think it's a BBC production, which I think is wonderful because they managed to capture the setting and the atmosphere of the play. They don't fool around with it to modernize it. or. Um, but I think watching it is always good. Um, it helps us. Because all of, all of our senses, seeing, hearing, are there. They're active. You know, Gestures mean something. And when we see a performance, that becomes clear in a way that isn't when we read a play. So let's start, because we've got, we've got a good bit to do. Um, any, any, any prayer requests for tonight? Any, let's start in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, for your presence with us, um, um, and for the life that you'll offer us tomorrow. It's a required Mass. Um, glad to go. Always glad to receive you. Um... I ask a blessing on all of us in this period of Advent. I know that there are concerns that everybody carries in their hearts right now. I'm not sure why everybody's so quiet, but I know all of us have concerns, family particularly, loved ones, and friends, lots of whom are undergoing medical treatments. It's just, it's, it's a commonplace now. We've reached that age where so many of the people who are friends are older and undergoing something. So um, here are cries, those sorrows that are right now not being expressed in our hearts. Um, respond to them, please. That's our trust. Here's our prayer for them. Ask for Kay's daughter. Um, um, I ask for a special grace for um, Kay's daughter, um, Connie's, um, Mike is, he wrote he's not here, but I know he, um, um, he carries concerns about his own kids, all of us do, our own children, our daughter Amy, Thomas, Vic, Christopher, Kayla, Adrian, Jonathan, Ems, all of them and their grandchildren, um, ask for a special grace for our own kids that um, everything our kids do, help our grandchildren grow closer to you, to not let this world catch them up and keep them from moving to you. It's a grave temptation for all of us. And I ask for a grace um, for the work we're doing together. Um, David, Kay, Connie, Karen, Bob, Chuck, Lori, Melody, Heather, um, who is late, um, all of us um, who are um, doing this work together. It is a great gift to me, 
and trusting it's a gift to you guys or you wouldn't be here. Help us to live these things, to find a courage in understanding our faith, being able to relate to more people, opening our eyes, becoming aware that more is going on in the world than we see, so be careful of the judgments we make. Um, let all that we're doing help open our hearts and our minds so that we can more completely live you. Um, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let it be here as it is in your kingdom. Um, let all of us feel this genuinely. It'll be one of Gloucester's remarks, I think, tonight. We'll look at it. that We can't know well if our hearts aren't open if we don't change our hearts. So clear our sight, open our hearts, strengthen them so that we can know you and better take you to our world in all that we do. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay. Um, the, um, let's finish Burnt Norton. We'll stay with the four quartets. Um, I'm, 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 again, I don't want to, I don't want to go into this. It's not our focus, um, but I'll just say this. You know that from the beginning, um, Elliot has been aware of the present moment, its importance in our life. That if, if all we have is the present, then life is unredeemed. We can't be helped. It's only if somebody comes from another world into this that we can answer our sin against God. So, so, long, as we believe, so long as we live in before or after, regretting too much, hoping for something, so long as we're not, to the degree to which we're not living in the present moment, we're in some ways um, not fully in touch with Christ. Because, um, and you know, we know this from Boethius, if we didn't know it before, that for God there is no past or future. There's only a present. It's an ongoing present. Um, so it's in the present moment that we most fully meet him. So the most important thing is what we do in the moment, in time, now, now, now. We're either working to live him, to bring a fullness to what we're doing, the way Paul describes in the mystical body we're always trying to complete fulfill the work of Christ in our own lives we're some we're in some degree out of touch with Christ and I'm going to argue with ourselves that we're not fully who God has given us to be the more fully we can enter into that present the more fully we become ourselves the more we participate in Christ's life so that's been a major concern for Eliot in the whole of the Four Quartets and in the Burnt Norton. And you remember that the, the principal image, the main key image of the whole quartets is the still point. We saw it in Boethius. He, he got it from Boethius, who got it from, or Dante, who got it from Boethius, who got it from Plato. That God is present in our life. We Remember we talked about this in Dante. When Dante looks back at the earth, he sees it not moving, and then he sees it in spiritual terms as a, as a point moving so fast it stands still. That still point is God, 
that still point is the intersection of time with the timeless, with eternity. And so the word, Christ, this is going to be very important in our reading tonight in Lear. The word, every one of us is made in Christ's image. The Imago Dei, the Anima Christianami, the, the image of the soul, the Christian soul. That was a really important image for the church fathers. The Imago Christiana, the image of Christ in the soul. Every one of us naturally carries Christ in it. That's why, for me, the, the Protestant um, um, theologians are, are so troubling to me because they saw nature as depraved. The Catholic sees human beings as images of Christ. We're wounded, but you cannot ruin an essence. You cannot ruin the, the image of Christ. You can wound it, and by your own wills you can go to hell with it, but we're not naturally depraved. We're naturally good. Christ is in us. We're wounded badly. Um, we have to, we have, I mean, in Paul's words, we have an opportunity to find Christ in our weaknesses, to accept our weaknesses and see them as a way to him. So the word is in us, the word of, the word of God. Christ is the word. So he's been looking at the still point, the image of God, and now in the last section of Bert Norton, he's going to f- relate that still point to the word. And you, you know certainly from the work we've done together that how important language is to me. I mean, that, that's why we do the lyrics and you know, talk about what poetry does and things most people, most sane people don't do. Um, <laughs> So in this last section, he's focusing on words, the word, and, and assuming we will make the connections with the other sections, okay? Section five of Bert Norton. Words move, music moves only in time, but that which is only living can only die. Words after speech reach into the silence, only by the form, the pattern, can words or music reach the stillness as a Chinese jar still moves perpetually in its stillness? Not the stillness of the violin while the note lasts, not that only, but the coexistence, or say that the end precedes the beginning, and the end and the beginning were always there before the beginning and after the end. And all is always now, words strain, crack, and sometimes break under the burden, under the tension, slip, slide, perish, decay with imprecision, will not stay in place, will not stay still. Shrieking voices, scolding, mocking, or merely chattering always assail them. The word in the desert is most attacked by voices of temptation, the crying shadow in the funeral dance, the loud lament of the disconsolate chimera. The detail of the pattern is movement, as in the figure of ten stairs. Desire itself is movement, not in itself desirable. Love is itself unmoving, only the cause and end of movement, timeless and undesiring, except in the aspect of time, caught in the form of limitation, 
between unbeing and being, sudden in a shaft of sunlight, even while the dust moves, there rises the hidden laughter of children in the foliage. Quick now, here, now, always. Ridiculous the waste, sad time stretching before and after. Um, I would encourage you all, the way I have before, to sometimes at night just read it out loud with your spouses or to yourself. It's, um, the poems are wonderful forms of meditation. Remember what I said always, it goes to what Connie was saying. You know, she's watching a play. She's not going to conceptually grasp it. But something is being grasped, but she sees it. That's the beginning of understanding. When you read a poem, we rarely understand it. We feel something. But with rereadings, our understanding clarifies some. It helps us to understand what it was that moved our emotions, what we didn't understand. Remember what I said earlier, that changing our hearts helps us to see, to understand things. We have better hearts, we see more. Okay, so, okay. Um, just quickly looking ahead before we look at Lear, we will finish um, Lear the first week of January. David and, and Kay, I hope I didn't put any pressure on you guys. I'm sorry if I did. Um, we, will, we will come back and finish it in the first week of uh, January. That will open up um, Christmas so people aren't pressing. When we get back and finish Lear, we'll do Pericles and Winter's Tale. They belong to that late period of Shakespeare's plays. Um, I, I call them sacramental plays. Most critics call them romances. There's a dark element and um, a sacramental, a, an element of mysticism or mystery. Strange things happen in those plays. In Pericles, we're going we're gonna to experience a man who's the only man that I know of in literature who hears the music of the spheres. It's that heavenly music that's always there that we don't hear because of our sins. Once we pass them, we enter into it. It's like we enter God's music and it's calming. That's a bad word. It has to calm infinitely. <laughs> you know, it, it gives us an infinite pleasure that quiets our souls. And Winter's Tale is, the, to me, the most perfect story of Christian forgiveness that I know of. So we have that to look forward to. When we're done with those, we're going to take a break. Remember I said we're going to read C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man and G.K. Chesterton's Orthodoxy. You can get any volumes you want. Um, Abolition of Man is a very short work, so whatever edition you get won't matter. I read um, Chesterton's Orthodoxy in the Ignatius Press. I'd recommend getting it, but if you find a cheaper edition you want it, get any edition you want because um, we won't go by page numbers, but I'm using the Ignatius Press edition and it's a good edition because it has other other works of Chesterton. At St. Francis we're doing scripture. We just started Matthew and I'm inviting all of you who have an interest in scripture to join us. We're going to do Matthew and John and Revelation and then um, I don't know what this is going to mean for us, but at St. Francis, we're bringing this thing to a close. We've been together for six or seven years. I, I don't know what I'm going to do with myself on Monday nights. Um, it's going to be a strange thing for all of us. Um,
but you're welcome to join us. When we're done, if everybody's up for it, I'm planning to do Melville Dostoevsky, Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov, which is an extraordinary, it's so important to read. Um, Flannery O'Connor, who is an American Catholic writer, one of the most important writers of the 20th century, she will um, she'll put a sharp edge to your faith. <laughs> she will, she will, she writes stories in, in what's called grotesque comedy yeah. um, that, that are full of grotesque things. She used to get letters from old people, old ladies, writing and saying, why do you write about all these nasty things all the time? You know, the center of O'Connor's life was the cross, the crucifixion, and that's, that's the most perfect image of grotesque comedy that I know of. This extraordinary thing is happening, but grotesquely we put God, who's the infinite image of beauty and order, and mangled him, disfigured him. So in the modern world, because of our fastidiousness, our scrupulosity, we want to make everything neat and clean. Our faith takes us to a cross where things are not neat and clean. So Flannery O'Connor is one of the most important modern writers, and she's Catholic. And Faulkner. And I just have to tell you that <laughs> lots of people in the um, Francis class love Faulkner, but some of them said, I can't follow him because he writes sentences that are 10 pages long. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, that's the truth. I mean, there's a there. He has a. I think in. I think it's in Absalom Absalom. He has a sentence that's probably ten pages long. So anyway, so that's ahead of us. Okay, King Lear. I want to go back just briefly um, to recall some of the important themes, and then I'd like to pick up where we left off last week. Major question last week, why did Shakespeare write this play set nine centuries before Christ? It's the most, I believe, in my opinion, I believe it's the most painful of his tragedies, in some ways the greatest. This in Lear and Coriolanus, which is not a, one of his popular tragedies, are extremely painful. You said and this in Lear. Coriolanus. Um, it's, it's in some ways the most painful. I, I've said why, because it involves betrayals in a family. The deepest relationships are cut up. And I'm going to say this tonight, because I don't think I've said this before, and I'm not going to take it up in discussion. I believe, you guys get your heads around this one. Heather, are you there? Hmm. Yes, I'm here. Okay, get your head around this. This is set ninth century. This is your question, so I don't want to take it up. I'm just going to make an assertion here, and you guys can heap coals on my head if you want. It's set nine centuries before Christ. Nine centuries before Christ came into this world. I'm going to say, in some ways, it's the most, most Catholic of his plays. Get your head around that. I don't want to take it up. I just want to leave that with you, okay? Next week, when, or sorry, next, at our next meeting, we can take that up and, and you can blast me if you want or agree or disagree. But, but I just want to throw that out for you guys, okay? It's the most, most Christian, most Catholic, of, in some ways, in some ways, of his tragedies. 
some of the major themes, the, the principal theme is the, is the difference between man-made justice and an a justice inherent in nature. There's two ways of looking at justice. We've talked about it. One is that it's inherent in the nature of things. God made us that way. There's an ordered God's nature. That was Boethius's argument. The other is there is no order to nature. Nature is chaotic. It's random. There's no order to it. And justice is man-made. And you recall from our, our classes before that that was the great theme of Plato's Republic. It's in the Republic that he has to answer that argument because Thrasymachus, one of the major characters of that dialogue, claims that justice is what those who are stronger over the weaker make it. Whoever has the power can determine what justice is. They will frame it according to their own desires. So man-made justice is a justice that's um, conventional, it's man-made, it's imposed, and it's understood that it's in response to a meaningless nature. We, 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 we construct our notions of justice out of motives of self-preservation and fear. Because the world is chaotic, if we don't have it, we die. We kill each other. So it's man-made. Those are the two things we see here. And, and they're, both of them are fully dramatized. Edmund's ready to kill. So is Reagan. So is Goneril. So is Cornwall. For what will they want to achieve with the use of their power? So they have no scruples about killing somebody or blinding somebody the way they do Gloucester um, for whatever they want. So man-made justice is, is created so that we don't kill each other because the motives that we're left with in a world that's meaningless are self-preservation and fear. Real justice, according to Plato and the tradition of the church, is... Um, inherent in the nature of things. The, the, the task that faces all men is to learn to conform ourselves to that justice, to make ourselves one with God's order. That's why God gave Moses the commandments. That why, that's why the law has been so important. That's why Christ came and said very clearly, I didn't come to um, do away with justice. I came to fulfill it, every iota of it. He went to a cross to fulfill an injustice against his father. So what Christ introduces into the world is um, um, implies a commitment to justice that is realized by a divine love. And he asks all of us to follow him, to bring that same kind of love to our efforts to achieve justice. Okay. So, the theme of justice. The theme of reason and madness. We'll come across those lines tonight. If we take the image of Boethus, remember the still point of the center and the circumference. Everybody in the circumference is so taken up by those four desires that Boethius described and St. Thomas describes. Power, pleasure, wealth, reputation. Those are the four desires that tend to dominate human beings. Those are the things we all seek. We want security. We want wealth. We want comfort. We want power. We want pleasure. 
The trouble with all of them, as Boethius made clear to us, is that they're all fleeting. They're perishable. When men make those their ends, what that's what they strive for, they're going to create conflicts for themselves because they're going to be at odds with each other. They're going to be con- in conflicts over who gets those things. Um, and um, they'll eventually be disappointed because they'll all pass. It's only when you move to that still point at the center of the circle that you begin to approach things the w- and see them the way God does. So people in the circumference tend to be caught in conflicts, what he called fate or destiny. At the center, we get closer to the order as God sees it. That means learning to order our desires um, and our loves. That's the great task facing us as humans. So reason and madness is one of the major themes of the play because on the circ- this is so important, and, and he, Shakespeare does a beautiful job of it here. We'll see it as we, we began to see it last week. We'll see more of it here. If you're on the circumference, you tend to see things in terms in which everybody else sees things. Your language will make that clear because you all share that same language, right? Pleasure, power. I mean, look at, look at, look at the political landscape tonight or, the, you know, today. They all speak the same language. They're all fighting with each other. They can't disagree or they can't agree on anything. They're ready to kill each other. Um, what we see is the, the more you move away from that center, the, or I mean the circumference towards the center, the more you appear to be mad to those people on the center who define their lives in different ways. Is that clear? I think it goes... Um, so directly to um, the point that um, Melody was speaking to and, and um, Heather last week. And let me, re- let me just insert here um, an ancient reference that speaks directly to this Shakespeare would have known really well. A work by Plato called the Phaedrus. In that work, he's dealing with a young man who's being pursued by a man who tells him it's not wise to love somebody because that man wants to use this kid for himself. He's a pedophile. He wants to take advantage, so he makes this argument about love. He says that love is mad. Stay away from it. Um, Socrates has to answer that. and he, I, it's, it's a wonderful dialogue. This is not the time to go in it, but it's, it's relevant here, so I want to just mention it. In that, in that um, dialogue, Plato makes clear that there are four types of madness or loves. Okay? Apollo expresses a divine madness. Dionysus, a ritual madness in the body. Bodies get torn up. He's like an image of Christ. The muses, a poetic madness, the madness of inspiration. And Aphrodite, erotic, erotic madness. Okay? Now, if love is mad and madness is a bad thing, we stay away from it and the loves that are behind it. But if there are some forms of madness that are good, they help us understand the nature of love better. Okay? Now, the rel- I hope everybody's seen the relevance of this play because both Lear and Gloucester, particularly Lear, go mad. 
And they do it as they move away from that center towards the heath and then after towards the hovel and finally to Dover Beach. And you know that Gloucester, when Edgar takes him to the cliffs, Gloucester is ready to jump off and kill himself. So in both instances, they, they seem to exhibit what to a modern psychiatrist, psychologist, a modern scientific mind would say, mad. And yet what Shakespeare's showing us is that there's a reason in that madness, that there's a wisdom that the world doesn't see. Okay? It's one of the major themes. So that people in our world, if they define themselves according to that circumference, they're going to become frightened if they're different. They're going to say, I don't fit in. Yeah? There's something wrong with me. What Shakespeare is showing, following Plato and Christ, is um, that as we pull away from that world, we enter into a mystery that actually is the way to salvation. So while we talk about Lear in terms of madness, that he's losing it, what Shakespeare's showing is that something's happening to help Lear come back to health. Now let me stop on this for a moment because these are those are the, and let me just say one, one other thing that we haven't looked at. I've talked about the role of disguises. Edgar has to put on one. Um, Kent puts on one, right? In the scene that we'll look at tonight, Edgar's going to take his father to the cliffs, and he's going to be in disguise. Why, why does he keep that disguise? Why is it important? And I want to go to Connie's example, because we're dealing with two old men who are losing it. This is very dear to my heart because I'm losing it and I think my kids are ready to put me in a hospital right now. <laughs> and, and if they do, I'm going to have no good kind words for my children. Um, um, why does he do that? Why does he do that? Why does he put on this disguise? If somebody were getting Alzheimer or going mad the way some of us may be doing as we're aging, um... Why is it important to put on a disguise? I don't want to answer that now. I'm going to come back to it. But I'm, I'm just presenting some of the more important themes of Lear and some of them we've touched on. But let me go back to this, this reason and madness. I just want to be clear that everybody understands it. Does everybody understand that? It'll become clear when we go through the scenes tonight. But any questions about those themes before we start looking at the text? Melody, by the way, are you there? Yes, I'm here. I was here actually two minutes before, but Microsoft put me through the ropes. Like, kept asking me questions and wouldn't let me in. They're so just challenging I your character. They want to test your character to see how well, tough you are. Well, somebody needs to, so that's good. <laughs> anyway, I didn't have you. Now I see you on image, but anyway, it's good to see you. And Heather, I, 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 I see your name, and I gather you're here. And, um, um. Anyway, any questions on the, those themes as I presented them? We're going to go to the text, so a lot of this will clear up shortly, but any questions about this reason and madness and why it's so important and what Shakespeare's doing with it here? Well, I'll be curious to see what the text says because I wrote down reading it that they had that madness because life turned out to be what they didn't envision. 
and and that's what was driving their madness but if i understand what you're saying you're saying the madness comes from the realization that life isn't what they're envisioning so they're headed back toward god to what god wants and that's why they appear mad yep okay yep oh then i'll be quiet and listen for them no you won't <laughs> even if you even if you try i'm going to be asking you questions so Good luck on that. Okay, what I'd like to do to begin is, um, by the way, I sent an outline again just before class. Sorry I'm always late. It's just it's a lot is going on, and I'm trying to pull things together. And, and if you knew me, you'd, <laughs> the, you'd you know that I can't do anything without making it hard. So anyway. Um, um, I've got, I want to go to the end of the play for a sec. Remember last week I gave you a couple of passages and I want to open with those passages today. I don't want to discuss them, but I just want to go back to them to remind you of these passages and the context in which they appear to point out these two poles. Man-made justice on the one hand, the cruelty of it, the the irony of it that it it can it hides something and real justice that's ontological it's in the being of things it's in things because what Shakespeare makes clear is the capacity of people to love is very often rooted in those two notions of justice that people who live their lives according to a man-made justice don't love as well they're very selfish and those who root themselves in an inherent justice and order in things are drawn to a real love generally through suffering. Because, but it's because they hold themselves to that justice that they suffer. Was that clear? I don't think I've ever said it as clearly in my life. <laughs> I hope you guys got that. Did everybody get that? Connie, is everybody okay? Kay, you look... Do you have a question? No, I don't believe you right now. I do not believe you. David, elbow her. Would you just give her an elbow? That, that these two forms of justice are important, man-made and inherent, because the inherent one is in the nature of things, that the people who love don't love as well. There's something that tends to be selfish because they're not grounded in reality. The people who are grounded in this real sense of justice come to a better love because they're grounded in something real, but usually at the cost of suffering because they hold to that sense of justice they will just the way Christ did at the cross. Okay? So I want to look at some of these passages again um, um, just to show you those two poles, to illustrate them for a second, okay? So, one of them we looked at is in um, Act 3, line, um, Act 3, scene 2, um, no, I'm sorry, Act 3, scene 7, line 220,
Remember, this is when um, Cornwall gets hold of Gloucester and they're going to punish him because he's um, been supporting Lear. So they look, at him, they look at him as a traitor. It's about line 23 or so. Wait, wait is this? Yeah, sorry, 223 or so. Um, and he says, um, get him in here, go seek the traitor, he comes. Though well we may not pass upon his life without the form of justice, yet our power shall do a court, um, a courtesy to our wrath. It'll serve it, which men may blame but not control. He knows that this should be, what he does with Gloucester, should involve a trial. That is, in our country, due process. I, I, I can't speak strongly because so much is going on in our country today to accuse people without giving them due process. To, you know, in our country, somebody's assumed innocent until they're proven guilty. I mean, watch what's going on in politics and the people convict each other before mm -hmm. due, due process has taken place. So, um, look at Act 5, Scene 3. Line 160. This is the point at which um, Albany challenges Edmund when Edmund tries to cozy up to him. It's really interesting to watch Edmund try to play him and Albany doesn't have anything to do with it and finally pulls out this letter and he accuses Edmund of treason. He says, this is Act 5, Scene 3, about line 85 or so. Stay yet here, reason, Edmund, I arrest thee on capital treason, and in thy attaint, this gilded serpent, he turns to Goneril, because she's complicit in everything he's done. For your claim, fair sister, I barred in the interest of my wife, um, to she is subcontracted to this lord. Her own wife has committed herself to Edmund. And I, her husband, contradict your banes, if you will marry, make your loves to me, my lady is bespoke. Um, Edgar will appear to challenge um, Edmund. Albany says, if somebody can come up and take my place, he can fight Edmund. If nobody does, he throws down his gauntlet. So Albany's prepared to fight Edmund himself. But Edgar appears and throws down his glove and the two fight and Edmund is wounded. This is about line 150 or so. When he falls, Albany says, save him, save him. Goneril, this is practice, Gloucester. She's saying this to Edmund. By the law of war, thou wast not bound to answer. You didn't have to do this, she's saying, because she wants to marry. She wants him over her husband. Was not bound to answer an unknown opposite. Thou art not vanquished, but cozened and beguiled. You were tricked. So she's supporting Edmund. Albany says, shut your mouth, dame, or with this paper shall I stop it. Now think about the anger directed at his wife here. Um, Goneril, say if I do, the laws are mine, not thine. Who, who can arraign me for it? Is, are those lines clear? Melody, go ahead. Paraphrase them, can you? Well, um... He's calling her out because she wants to have an affair, and, and um, you know she's trying to tell her lover or wannabe lover that he doesn't have to say anymore. He should never have, yeah. have uh, answered this. He should have kept his mouth shut, and 
and her husband says, shut your mouth. <laughs> and she says, hey, I, you know, I'm, I think what she's saying is I'm the queen. So I, I don't have to answer to this either. I mean, right. right. Say, if I do, the laws are mine. She can do whatever she wants because she can give a power to her will. It's exactly like Cornwall. So what's foremost in her soul is her will and her will for power. She can do what she wants. She has the power to do it. Okay? Is everybody clear? So we've got Cornwall and Goneril espousing um, a justice that they make for themselves according to whatever they want. They, they can make whatever they want. Okay. We read the lines, um, Albany, Act 4, Scene 2. Go to Act 4, Scene 2. Act 4, Scene 2, about line 80 or so. The messenger just informs Albany of what happened to the servant in Gloucester, remember? And the servant stood up against Cornwall. Cornwall. Albany says, this shows you are above, you justicers, that these are nether crimes so speedily can venge, but oh poor Gloucester, lost he his other eye. He knows that the servant killed Cornwall, so he says, some justice is at work in the world. Now, hold on to this, because it's so clear. People can intend to do all they want. They can pray for justice. Shakespeare knew that. He was Catholic. But in every one of these instances, we watch people acting on their beliefs. They either think they can do whatever they want, or they're acting in accord with God's law. And the, the risk of doing that is they may have to sacrifice their lives. And in this case, the servant did, and Albany's praising him for it. This shows you are above, you justicers, that these are nether crimes, so speedily can venge. The, the assumption is, this is Boethius again, men can do evil, that evil will come back to haunt them. God will do something. Remember, God allows evil to protect our free wills, but he's never not at work. He's always doing something to answer evil, to bring good out of evil where he can, and to answer it where he can. Okay? Now, two last quotes. Go to Act 4, Scene 4. Cordelia has just learned that her father's gone mad and he's on the heath and she wants to send out a messenger to bring him in. She's just distraught. Remember, she's the queen of France now. She and the king came. The king returned, leaving her there because he's got political business to attend for. She's on her own. But she's there with the French armies and we know that the French armies are going to be defeated. Cordelia will be captured. Lear will be captured. The English will be victorious. Um, but here she comes to help save her father, to bring an army. Um, <clears throat> she says, bring him to me. What can a man's wisdom in the restoring of his bereaved sense? He that helps him take all my outward worth. She's pleading. The doctor, there is means, madam. Our foster nurse of nature is repose, which he lacks. That to provoke in him are many simplest operative whose power will close the eyes of anguish. He's saying all he needs is medicine. <laughs> Does anybody hear an irony there? Melody, go ahead. Well, I mean, like many doctors or 
psychiatrist, you know, all you need is a little bit of medicine. Try this. If it doesn't work, we'll switch it and have you try this. Not that I'm bad-mouthing psychiatry, but, um, you know, the pills are the answer. And, and I think we as people have gotten used to that, too. Whenever I'm sick, I just want a pill to make me better. I don't want to have to do anything else. Just give me a pill. So. Right. Yeah. And, re and remember, set this against here on the leaf because we've been watching a man go mad. You know, we'll, we'll just rest, take care of that. He's, he's in a, let me put this more darkly. He's in a spiritual crisis. He's lost his bearings. The world as he understand it has been unmasked. He's looking at the world in a different way. He can't return to it. Is the doctor's answer going to help him with that? The spiritual well, anguish is too deep, too deep. And honestly, I mean, I do, I, I've had a little bit of a dealing with psychiatry um, in my life these last couple of years. And that's what I feel like they do is just, it, you know, you don't have to talk about it or work through anything. You just take this pill and see if it'll help you feel better. And if this doesn't work, then you try something else. So it's the kind of the easy way out. It's not trying to deal with. The, the root of the problem. Yeah. So to me, this really spoke a lot. Yeah. And I, by the way, I, I want to be with Melody here for a second. I, I don't want to badmouth that because the sciences do have a lot to other. One of the questions that I asked you on the, on the notes, if you saw them, is Edgar is going to take his father to the Cliffs of Dover. He's going to put on a mask. So the answer is not a pill. You know, because I think lots of therapists have their heads on enough to know you have to talk through something to get somewhere. The question is, can they get to spiritual depths? And, and or let me put it better. I mean, to, in, in support of the sciences, how many doctors can really go to those depths when they involve Christian mysteries, sin, sin, grace? So Cordelia says, all blessed secrets, all you unpublished virtues of the earth, spring with my tears. Be aidant and remediate in the good man's distress. Seek, seek for him, lest his ungoverned rage dissolve the life that wants the means to end it. We know how important her words are because we've been watching Lear go man. But then she says, tis known before our preparation stands in expectation of them. A war is going on. Oh dear father, it is thy business that I go about. She's more concerned for her father than the war right now. She's there to get him. Now hold that against Goneril. Go to 5-1. <coughs> Act 5, scene 1, line 232, I think. I'm, I'm not sure that I have. Hold on. Lines. No, it can't be. Um, oh God! Oh, here it's no, it's at five one line nineteen. Oh yeah, it's fifteen. Sorry, it's um, Act Five, Scene One, Line Nineteen or so. The two women are trying to. Um, manipulate things so that they get to Edmund and we already know at this point in the in the scene that I just read where Al Albany challenges um, Edmund Reagan repeatedly says she feels sick something's happening in her stomach 
And we learn from one of Gonro's lines that Gonro's already poisoned her. The, the poison is working. So a sister has poisoned another sister. That's how badly she wants Edmund. So um, um, Reagan says, I shall never endure her. Dear my lord, be not familiar with her. saying, stay away from her. Edmund, fear me not. She and the duke, her husband. Edmund's lying to her. He's saying, don't worry. Gonroll aside, I had rather lose the battle than that sister should loose, loosen him and me. What's the difference between Gonroll and, and Cordelia in those lines? Is everybody following? I had rather lose the battle, this war, than that sister should loosen him and me. That the sis, my sister would come between me and Edmund. Chuck, what's the difference? Yes. Well, clearly one thing is that Cordelia is doing it for motivations of love and justice for her father for something else. A sacrifice, of course, Goneril's doing it all for her own ends. Yeah. Is everybody clear? So, in the context of things where characters are revealing themselves by their words, but what we're seeing is two radically different understandings of justice and of love, the love that is related to it. Okay. Any questions up to this point? Because okay. at this point I want to go to Lear and, and go through the text again and see what's happening with him. But let me stop for a moment. Any, any questions about these themes or some of these larger concerns that we're that I'm touching on I want to get to the Heath back and Lear and go forward with him but I'm glad to take a minute if any of you have questions Connie how much were you aware of any of this when you were watching the play Yeah, it was on the part where uh, the sister was saying how sick she was, and um, yeah, I did. I did watch that part this afternoon. I need to. I need to watch the rest of it. <laughs> but it was. It was. It, it's. It's very good. You know, it's interesting. It's interesting. To, sorry, go ahead, Chuck. Oh. The play doesn't stop. It could be time to reflect. You have to keep with the action, or you lose the intent. Yeah, but the interesting thing I was just thinking about Connie's comment that. When you watch the play, it seems to me, even if you're not reflecting on it, you can't miss that Ronald or Goneril is a really evil person, a woman. Yeah. While you're right. watching, you're not thinking about it, but but it's so present to your senses. So even if you don't reflect on it, you can't, there's no mistake. And you hear it in her words. So even if you're not thinking, drama is a, a wonderful, I'm so sorry that, that we don't have a strong drama tradition in the modern world, because I think it says something about us. We have to see things with our eyes and hear things with our ears. <clears throat> We're not meant to be Gnostic, to live in our heads. And everything about the modern world has put us in our heads. <clears throat> okay, no. Okay, let's, um, I want to go. Um, I want to just... Um, quickly remind you of a couple of scenes and then go to the Heath again. In Act 2, Scene 4, remember when Reagan said, why need one? Get rid of your whole retinue. 
Lear says, Act 2, Scene 4, Line 260, O reason not the need, our basest beggars are in the poorest things superfluous. Allow not nature more than nature needs, man's life is cheap as beast. Thou art a lady, if only to go warm were gorgeous. Put that against this passage that I asked you to look at last night. In Act 3, Scene 4, Lear is looking at Edgar, who's um, in disguise as a beggar, and Lear says, Thou wert better in a grave than to answer with thy uncovered body this extremity of the skies. Is man no more than this? Consider him well. Thou owest the worm no silk, the beast no hide, the sheep no wool. Worms have silk, beasts have hide, sheep have... They're all protected from the nature, right? All animals are created in a way to protect them from whatever's going on in nature. Man is naked to all that. Mm. So we, we, we wear clothes to answer a need, to keep our bodies warm, right? Ants, ants don't need to do that. Sheep don't need to do that. You know, all the creatures he's mentioning. We, we need clothes, um, but there's something strange about man because he doesn't live at a necessity the way animals do. So even while we have to dress ourselves to protect ourselves against the elements, it's as if there's something in us that's higher, um, that can't be made sense of just in terms of need. And the best way that I can illustrate this, um, I'm looking at Chuck and Lori, and there's a picture behind them. I'm looking at David and Kay, and there's pictures on their stairway. I'm looking at Connie and her bookshelf and see pictures. Same thing with Melody, right behind her head. Why do, why do we surround ourselves with art or beauty? Do ants or worms or beasts or sheep? The cat, no perfume. Ha ha. There's three on it are sophisticated. Those animals are sophisticated in the sense they contain something that protects them in their nature. Thou art the thing itself, unaccommodated man is no more but such a poor bare forked animals as thou art. If we if we get reduced and take away our necessities, we are I don't know what's the word, the most helpless, the most vulnerable of creatures on the earth. We are superior by our by virtue of our intellects. God made us in his image, we have minds, we can, we can make airplanes, we can make clothes. But, um, um, but leave us as we are, we are the most, ind that's the word, we are the most indigent of creatures. We need so much. So when Lear is going, you know, when his retinue has been taken away, oh reason not the need, our basis beggars are in the poorest things superfluous? Allow not nature more than nature needs. Remember what he says, if only to go warm were gorgeous, why nature needs not what thou gorgeous wearest, which scarcely keeps thee warm. A gown isn't going to keep her warm. She wears, it, she wears it for the beauty, that there's something else in man, something transcendent. But for true need, you heavens, give me that patience, patience I need. Patience is that virtue we call on when we're in the presence of something we can't get a hold of. Lear is entering... A different world. He's losing everything. 
He's about to enter another world. I want to read that line that I read last week because to me it's so powerful. He goes on the heath, remember, and he says to the storm, Blow, you cataracts, crack nature's molds, all germane, spill at once. That makes ingrateful man. We are, we are one with nature. The one way in which we show ourselves most opposed to nature is by our ingratitude, as if we haven't been given something. Lear looks at Kent, he's a beggar, and then he says, this is Act 3, Scene 2, Line 50. This is in his anger when he's responding to what the, his daughters have just done. Let the great gods that keep this dreadful putter o'er our heads find out their enemies now. Tremble, thou wretch that has within thee undivulged crimes unwhipped of justice. Hide thee, thou bloody hand, thou perjured and thou similar of virtue that are incestuous. Caitiff to pieces shake that under covert and convenient seeming has practiced on man's life. Everything they do is by appearances, by seeming to be something they're not. Close pent-up guilts, rive your concealing continents, these worlds you create for yourself, and cry these dreadful summoners grace. I am a man more sinned against than sinning. I suggested last time when we feel injustices against us, our natural impulse is anger. We're hurt. We're wounded. Somebody's done us some wrong. And so often at, at the bottom of that is some sense that we don't deserve it. We're innocent. I am a man more sinned against than sinning. Is he more sinned against than sinning? I don't think so. Okay, here, I want to I move us forward. Um, I want to look at two scenes in particular that, that move us towards the end because to me they're, they're so pregnant. They're just... Um, Act 3, Scene 6. They leave the heath and Gloucester meets them and takes them to this little hovel or cottage. I think of it as a hovel, Act 3, Scene 6, the very beginning. Here is better than the open air. Take it thankfully. I will piece out the comfort with that addition I can. I will not be long from you. So Gloucester admits them. Kent goes in with the others. Kent says, all the power of his wits have given way to his impatience. The gods reward your kindness. Now, Lear's going to hold a mock trial, and right after this trial, we're going to go back to um, Gloucester's castle, and it will be there at Gloucester's castle, his own home, that Cornwall will pluck out his eyes, and the servant will kill Cornwall, okay? But here, in this hovel, they enter, and this is what happens. Um, they come in, Edgar... Frederick calls me and tells me Nero is an angler in the um, lake of darkness. Pray, innocent, and beware the foul fiend. He acts like he's surrounded by these things and making him mad. The fool, pretty uncle, tell me whether a madman be a gentleman or a yeoman. Lear, a king, a king. The fool, know he's a yeoman that has a gentleman to his son. For he's a mad yeoman that sees his son a gentleman before him. He's saying that Lear made his children more important than him. And that fact has created this problem. So once again, the fool is always reminding Lear of his foolishness. Lear, to have a thousand with red burning spirits come hissing in upon them. 
The foul fiend bites my back. Fool, he's mad that trusts in the tameness of a wolf, a horse's health, because it won't last, a boy's love, or a whore's oath. He's saying, you're stupid to do any of these things. You're a fool. Lear, it shall be done. I will arraign them aright. So he calls Edgar and the fool to his assistance to carry out this trial. So he's going he's gonna to perform a mock trial of his daughters. Okay, So about line 35 he says, I'll see their trial first. Bring me their evidence to Edgar. Thou, robed man of justice, take thy place to the fool. And thou, his yoke fellow of equity, bent, bench by his side to Kent. You're, you're, you are o'er the commission. Sit you too. Edgar, let us deal justly. Um, he makes these comments. Lear says, Arraign her first. Tis Goneril. I here take my oath before this honorable assembly. Kick the poor king her father. Fool, come hither, mistress. Is your name Goneril? She cannot deny it. Cry you mercy? I took you for a footstool. Clearly what they're doing is Lear is taking stools that are present in the hovel and using them in place of his daughters. And one of them is very crooked, <laughs> which is emblematic of his daughter, but he, he's using these stools. I took you for a joint stool, says the fool, because that's what's happening. I mean, it's a stool. And here's another whose warped look proclaims what store her heart is made on. Stop her there. Arms, arms, sword, fire, corruption in the place, false injustice. Why has that let her escape? Edgar, bless thy five wits. He's watching Lear go mad. Can't, oh pity, sir, Where's the patience now that thou so oft have boasted to retain? Even patience seems not to be present or at work. Edgar, my tears begin to take his part so much that they mar my countervening. He's finding it hard to keep on his... Think about this, because this is going to a real point. He's put on a disguise to help his father. The suffering before him is so grave, he's finding it hard to keep up his disguise. Lear, the little dogs and all, Trey, Blanche, and Sweetheart, see, they bark at me. He's seeing his daughters as if they're animals attacking him. Edgar um, speaks to that and says, Do, D, 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 Sessa, come, march to wakes and friars and mark, market towns. Poor Tom, thy horn is dry. Even Edgar is wearing out. He, he finds it hard. Lear, then let them anatomize Reagan. See what breeds about her heart. Is there any cause in nature that makes these hard hearts? To Edgar, you, sir, I entertain for one of my hundred. He's, remember, he's, he's put on a, um, a disguise to serve him. Only I do not like the fashion of your garments. You will say that they are Persian, but let them be. Actually, remember, he put on the disguise to um, escape his father. So he and Kent are in disguise. Both of them are watching this happen to Lear. You, sir, I entertain for one of my hundred, only I do not like the fashion of your garments. You will say they are, they are Persian, but let them be changed. Kent, now good, my lord, lie here and rest a while. Lear, make no noise, make no noise, draw the curtains. So, so, we'll go to supper in the morning. The fool says, and I'll go to bed at noon. Now hold on to that. Lear right now sleeps. He's exhausted. He's absolutely exhausted. He's an old man. He's um, cruelly treated by his children. He goes to sleep, 
and says, we'll go to supper in the morning. The fool, and I'll go to bed at noon. Lear's, uses, Lear's just being figured. He's going mad. The fool says, and I'll go to bed at noon. These are the last words we'll hear from the fool. Okay. Now here's two questions really important for me. One is, why does Lear um, do this mock trial? Why does Shakespeare have this scene? So one question is, why does Lear perform this mock trial? What's its function here? Why does he do it? What is Shakespeare doing? And the second is, Lear says he's falling asleep in exhaustion. Make no noise, make no noise, draw the curtains. He's, he's in, in a fit of madness and exhaustion. So, so, we'll go to s supper in the morning. He'll eat in the morning when he wakes up. The fool, and I'll go to bed at noon. Okay, two questions. Why does Lear do this mock trial, and what's the significance of this last exchange between Lear and the fool? Because these are the last words we'll hear from the fool. From this, this is crucial. We you won't. Wait, 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 Chuck. Sorry. Remember, fool. The fool entered when Cordelia disappeared. Remember, Lear was going, where's my fool? And it's a, it just happens when Cordelia leaves. The fool enters his life then, and at this point, he's going to leave. So, and, and you know, stage entrances and exits, stage, I mean, Connie, what, the gestures on a cage, stage when somebody comes in or leaves, all those things, gestures, what we do with our bodies, are full of significance in a play. So two things. First, the trial, and second, this moment. Let's take the trial. Why does Lear do this? Why does Shakespeare have this scene here? Chuck, did you? Go ahead. Sorry. I just wonder if you want us to answer it now. Or yeah, 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 no, I do. It's, it's, a, it's a turning. It's an awakening in a sense that he realizes the injustice he's done to him, his mistake. And slow down, you know, Kay, slow down. It's hard to, I don't know if the yeah, sound it's is. A it's a turning point for him. He realizes now the mistake he's made, the injustice. Uh, that's been done, and how uh, well packed evil that his daughters are. Oh, you're frozen. Okay, there you go. And I think maybe the fool's exit is. is wait, leave on, Wait on. Wait on that. Let's take that. Let me take these separately. Connie or Kay, did you have something? Go ahead. Wait, Doc. Oh, I want Suzanne left. I really want her here. She, Doc. Yes. Are you coming? Yeah, I'm getting your wine. Okay. Sorry, Kay, go ahead. Isn't Lear trying to expose their, uh, I mean, his daughter's true uh, love toward him? He's starting to doubt that his daughter's love is not genuine. And by doing this mock trial, he's trying to expose that. Okay, you know that before this, he's already realized how cruel they are because he's, you know, he's, in all those speeches we've read, he curses them and um, he calls down the wrath of the storms on them. He, he calls them names. He, he sees how foul they are. Here, he's taking him to court, sort of basically in a mock trial. Trying to attempt to bring him justice? Down on them? Yeah. Yes, but it's a mock trial. So, is this a part of his madness? 
do we look at this and say he's just mad? Lots of people do. They say he's just mad. This is another sign of his madness. He's Let me put it differently, if I can. Um, Lear's going insane. I mean, he really is. He's, um, and we'll see shortly this passage, the scene in which he and Gloucester are together, and uh, Shakespeare will use the word reason and madness. There's something going on in these two men. And at this point, lots of critics think he's just lost it. He's putting his daughters through a trial. It's a mock trial. There's no purpose to it. What's the point? He's just mad. Connie, you have a thought on this? Why is... Well, let me put it differently. Why is this important for Lear's... Lear's going to change. When he finally comes to Dover, he's not going to be the king we saw. He's going to be crushed. He's on a cross. He's helpless. He has no power. The English um, have um, um, captured um, them, he and Cordelia. His daughter, who's the Queen of France, is now captured. She's going to be killed. So we're looking at a lot of suffering, but a, a man, and lots of critics are going to say about the ending, this is Shakespeare showing how futile life is. The, look at all the suffering and misery and betrayals. Life is a mocking shadow. It's not real. It's all futile. Connie, do you have a thought about this mock trial? Why why it's important and what, what Shakespeare's doing with it? Why it's here? Not not really. Um, no, I don't. Melody? Or wait, hold on. Heather, are you here? Heather, are you around? Are you around? Yes, I'm here. Did you hear my question? Yes. I don't want to. I, I keep. I keep forgetting there are other people here, and I'm sorry I'm missing you. But <clears throat> and I just lost Melody, and I don't want to lose her. I don't know what's going on on my screen. Heather, do you have any thoughts about this? What my, did you hear my question? Yes, I just. I think it's really interesting that that the people who are attending this trial are a, a man who's going mad. A fool who's actually wise, and a man who is posing as a madman beggar, but is not really that. Good. It, yeah. It's it's quite a justice that that they have here. Yeah. Quite a court. Quite a what? Quite a court. court. Quite oh, a court. Yeah. Quite a court. Doug, that why, they have. Can I? I'm. Why? Why is this? Why is Lear taking his daughters through this? Why is it important here at this point? Because what's left of his sanity is his... Can you all hear, Suzanne? Sure. Is his sense that he's been wronged. Um, and, and he wants justice. And the only way to get justice is in a court. And... He can't really put them on trial, but he can hold this mock trial, um, and that appeals to his sense of injury and his sense of justice, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's almost a recognition of his own weakness, too. He's not just railing against them and calling down curses on him. 
he's taking his case, he's pleading a case. Yeah, I'm glad you said that, um, Chuck, because one of the, I mean, to put that together with what Suzanne just said, because I think the, the wisdom is putting that together, that it's only by going through a formal act that he can distance himself enough from it to deal with the pain. Because I think Suzanne's right. He, I mean, he's still feeling the injury of what his daughters have done. There's no way. He wants justice. This, whatever you say about this man at this point, he wants justice. So to go through this mock trial is in part a way of realizing, even if it's in the imagination, it's, it's being formally realized. And it's interesting to me that in a trial, it allows for some formal distance between the injury you know, and your response to it. So going through it, I, I mean, lots of people just say he's mad. Well, we can say he is, but, but he is holding on to enough sanity to know that he's trying to answer an injustice. And it, there's a formality to the proceeding that I think that is important for him in this struggle. Um, any other comments? Uh, Melody, I've lost you. Heather, I don't have your image. I hope, I hope you guys, I'm not, I hope I'm not losing you guys. You didn't lose me. Melly, do you have, do you have any thoughts about this? I'm here. Well, I mean, I agree that uh, it was a justification. You know, he needed to have this trial in order to justify his anger, even if he just handpicked the court. You know, he was going to tell them why he was so wronged, why he was sinned above all sinning or whatever that is. But I don't know if I necessarily agree that he was learning by his mistakes because in, he, in a couple more scenes, he railed on about how he wants these men to go out and have sex so that he can have more soldiers. So to me, he doesn't really learn his lesson until act four when he says, I'm just a fool, I'm a foolish old man. And that's when he starts to finally figure out that his man-made justice might win the battle, but it's not going to win the war. Yeah, I've got... Um, I, I want to be careful here. I, I, I wouldn't say that he's learning something consciously the way we do when we conceptualize something. The, um, I think what Suzanne was saying, and I think Chuck are close to something, and it, it's certainly the way I see it. He's not learning something consciously because he's losing it. But I think there's an importance to what happens in the sense that it helps, I don't know if you can call this in the depths of your soul, <coughs> move um, because to, to just leave it there and go on is t is in some ways to acknowledge that he can't do anything about it so even though it's a mock trial he's trying to do something um, to realize a justice um, while he's you know in how we're going to describe this state that he's in um, I want to I want to I want to wait on the your comment about because I don't know the passage you're talking about, and if you're, they're the ones that we're, I think you're talking about, I think there's a different reading, but I've got to wait because I'm not sure that we're talking. So hold on to that, Melody. Let me take the second thing. How do we understand this exchange between Lear and the Fool? Because this is the last moment we'll see the Fool. Make no noise, make no noise, draw the curtains, so, so. He's exhausted. He's going to sleep. He's just worn out. And I'll go to bed, or I'll, um, we'll go to supper in the morning. The fool and I'll go to bed at noon. Any thoughts on that exchange? Lori. <laughs> Do you have any thoughts? Do you have any thoughts? 
Where's Karen and Bob? Are you guys, are you guys, you're, why do I keep, does anybody know, it looks like my screen is set up that I can only get four pictures instead of six or eight or ten. Is there something I can do to? Slide, maybe slide. Sorry? Slide it, slide with your finger or, or with your, um. Mouth. Mouth. Hear me? There's Dave and Kay again and I, you're back. Karen and Bob are not here. There you are. We're here. Well, <laughs> the picture disappears. Is there something? Because my screen looks like it's set up just to get four. Because when anybody else comes on, is there something I can do to increase that number? I think first to, uh, first come, first serve type of thing. So the first part that uh, uh, the you can see. But the people who come afterwards, we you can, can't see the we can see uh, picture. I'm gonna I'm gonna call after the, I'm gonna call Michael who knows the stuff and I'll, I'll let me but um, Bob or Karen did you you guys have any thoughts on this last exchange between Lear and the Fool? It, it's at this point that the Fool will disappear. I have a thought, but you may think I'm totally way off base. But if you're mad, that just means you're in a you're in a good place right now. You should know that. So, uh oh, no, that happened years ago. Um, well, I, I think Shakespeare's making this the turning point of the whole play. And I could be wrong, but I think the whole point is the fool disappears because he's the wisdom of the world. He doesn't have the answer for King Lear. I mean, we're getting ready to figure out that Edgar is the guy that has a more spiritual answer for Lear. And I think the whole play is turning on, I don't think the, the trial was as important as understanding that the fool doesn't have the answers for King Lear. Because the wisdom of the world isn't really answer for us. And I think we're getting ready to figure out Really, it's the foolishness of the cross that really is the point of this whole play. Yeah. And the fool is not needed anymore. That's there, kind of my two cents. Yeah, yeah, no, that's good. I, I, I agree with the conclusion. I'm not sure that our understanding is, is the same, though. Doc, what, how do you see this moment? When the fool leaves? Yeah. Well, I think that Bob has that part right, the fool is no longer needed. He's been a voice calling Lear to look at his foolishness, um, to keep saying to him things that ordinarily people would not say to a king. By the way, just if I can interrupt Suzanne, this this is where I, I, I have a little bit of trouble with, I absolutely agree, I, there, I, to me Bob, what you're saying, I, there's a lot of truth in it because I think this is the beginning of a turn although I understand the fool a little bit different. I don't see the fool as the wisdom of the world because right. nobody in the world talks that way. They'd be killed. The fool, is offering, the, the fool is offering Lear honesty about things that n nobody, and even Lear himself. If, but sorry, Doc, can you, if you, can you pick up to go ahead? No, I, I just think the fool, the role of the fool has been to... Um, to keep pointing out to Lear how foolish 
what an idiot he has been um, all along. Mm -hmm. And that's been the role probably before Lear started all of this. I mean, the, the role of the fool in a court is to point out to the king. Things that nobody else was saying. Yeah. And then when Lear starts acting, you know, banishing Cordelia and all, you know, all the stuff we've been reading, the fool keeps pointing out to him how foolish he is. And now we've reached the point where, as Bob says, we're having, we're facing a turn. Lear is, hasn't gotten there yet, but he's about to. And Why does the fool disappear at this point? What does that mean? Because his, his role as the person who's calling Lear to sanity is no longer necessary. Lear is moving in that direction. And um, he has the support of Kent, he has the support of Edgar. Um, there are other people who don't have to be in his face. Um, and he's, he's making that turn. So yeah. I don't think the fool is necessary anymore. Yeah. Um, to, yeah to, sorry, go ahead, Bob. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, what, my should raise hand. Wait, Chuck, oh, can you hold on for a second? Hold on, Chuck, because I think no, Bob... Sorry. Bob, go ahead. Yeah. I guess my, my point was, I don't know, I think the big Christian Catholic theme is the paradox of the cross. You have to lose your life to gain it. And, I mean, that's, to me, that's what's going to happen next. Yeah. Once worldly wisdom is gone... What takes over? Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, Chuck, did you have something? Yeah, I, I think that um, in understanding the proper role of a fool, it's important to realize it's not just opening his eyes or telling him he's been foolish. He may not have been. It's, it goes beyond that. It's because most of what the fool does isn't telling things uh, to Lear that he doesn't know, it's inducing humility in it. It's a really supremely Christian virtue there. And if you think about the role of kings and how justice, well, throughout history and prehistory has been defined, it's what the king says it is. And here the king is surrendering that, and he's making reference to a transcendent justice. It's an act of humility. And almost everything that comes out of the fool's mouth is to induce humility in the king. And, and now he, we see a result. Not necessarily the fool's doing, but there's humility on yeah, display. Yeah. Um, I think it's, it's interesting... Um, to, uh, to take seriously what you just said. Um, Lear may know all of this in some way because he responds sharply often as if he's going to do something with the fool. Um, he said it before he knows it. It's really interesting to see how important it is that it be said for all of us as human beings because we may... And I, and I think it goes to your point about humility. We may know that we have a fault. You know, we can live... When somebody points it out, that's another thing. I mean, it can go so directly to our pride that we can put up walls, defenses. One of the values of the fool is that he takes on the role of being a fool, so nobody will take him seriously, but he can speak things nobody else will. And it's interesting at this point that he leaves, and I think to, to take up Suzanne's point, because I think there's a real truth to it, that, that it... it that he's not needed anymore, that that function has been served. 
that those truths have been made clear um, and that's important for the changes that Lear is going to go on to make from this point. I mean, we'll, we'll see that, but clearly some turn. You know, if you go back to those lines that I read when he said, um, you know, when he spoke to Edgar about his poverty and here nature, here dear goddess, here, um, or no, no, um, where is it? No, it's that passage in that ends with I'm a I'm more sinned against than sinning. Yeah. Let the great gods that keep their dreadful, you know, goes go on. He's he's injured and hurt and angry. I'm a man more sinned against than sinning. He looks at Edgar and says, You are you are the thing itself unaccommodated. He's learning He's going to, I, I don't know what to call it, an, ex, an existential center where man is stripped of everything to learn to see who really is once he gets past all the conventions, all the trappings. And here, um, he's exhausted. He's just put on this mock trial, which I think is absolutely crucial for him to go on. And then we're going to see what happens. Immediately after this, Edgar is going to say... Um, um, a few lines after when we are better see bearing our woes we scarcely think our miseries are foes who alone suffers suffers most in the mind leaving free things and happy show he he thought he knew what suffering was before but now that he sees Lear undergoing this pain an old man having lost everything in the world Tom away mark the high noises thyself beray when false opinion whose wrong thoughts defile thee, and what thy proof repeals and reconciles thee, what will hap more tonight safe? Scape the king. He wants the king to get away. I mean, we, at this point, you know he's going to be helped off to, or sent to Dover um, to save his life. And it's at this point that Gloucester is going to have his eyes put out. Turn to Act 4, Scene 1. Because um, there are two scenes I want to close on. This is one of them. This is the point where Edgar takes his father about, this is Act 4, Scene 1, about line 25 or so. Oh God, who can say, I am at the worst, I am worse than e'er I was. He thought he knew suffering before. His father's in front of his, his eyes are gouged out. Um, he has nothing. And he presents himself as poor man Tom. He's mad. I mean, according, just I thought Heather's presentation was wonderful. Um, um, Gloucester, um, old man, madman and beggar too. Gloucester he has some reason, else he could not beg. In the last night's storm, I such a fellow saw, which made me think a man a worm. My son came then into my mind, and yet my mind was then scarce friends with him. I've heard more since. He was actually looking at his son, you know, in the hovel, and seeing him, although he was in disguise, so he could. Now he's blind and recalling that moment. Um, mm. Edgar's going to now take him to the cliffs. He says, line 37, bad is the trade that must play fool to sorrow, angry in itself and others. Bless thee, master. Is that the naked fellow? I, my lord, then prithee get thee gone. If for my sake thou wilt overtake us hence a mile or twain the way to Dover, do it for ancient love and bring some covering for this naked soul which I'll entreat to lead me. 
he will take him to the cliffs. He says, line 52, poor Tom, poor Tom's a cold. I cannot dive it further. He's finding it harder and harder. Imagine, I, I sometimes try to imagine with, with kids whose parents have Alzheimer's when they slip into and they have no way of relating to their parents. Everything that they've, everything that they've known in life is gone. And they have to put on a role. I hope you'd all agree with that. Because yeah. you can't act the way you did because your parent no longer relates to it. You have to somehow put on a role in order to relate to them in that condition. How important is, I'm going to generalize, on how important is it, taking up Bob's point, particularly if the, a turn is taking place here, how important is it that we put on a role for the good of another person? That we accept a cross, lose ourselves. This is Odysseus going home. Lose ourselves in order to help something else, to bring about a good. That is to accept a cross, to, do, to die to ourselves. How important is that at moments like this? He says, I cannot dive it farther. Gloucester, come hither, fellow, and yet I must. Bless thy sweet eyes, they bleed. You can see a son wanting to touch his father's eyes without, without disclosing that he's the man's son. He takes him to the edge and he jumps off um, about line 60 or so. Um, Here take the purse thou whom the heaven's plagues have humbled to all strokes that I am wretched makes thee the happier. Heaven's deal so still let the superfluous superfluous and lust dieted man, the man who has everything he wants, that slaves your ordinance, that, that makes of God's laws slaves, that is, he makes God's laws serve him. We're back in that natural uh, man-made sense of justice again. Heavens deal so still, let the superfluous and lust dieted man that slave, let that man that will not see because he does not feel, feel your power quickly. Let the people, that is, let the people who don't have good hearts feel this. Because this is what we come to, this existential justice. Is everybody following this moment? Let the superfluous and less dieted man that slaves your ordinance, that makes your laws serve him, that will not see because he does not feel, feel your power quickly. So distribution should undo excess. <laughs> G.K. Chesterton was a distributor. He, his response to capitalism was to distribute things. To That's the church in its beginnings with the apostles. D distribution should undo excess, and each man have enough. Dost thou know Dover? They'll lead him there. Um, they come to... They come to Dover, eat on Act 4, Scene 6, <coughs> about line 40. O you mighty gods, the world I do renounce, and in your sight shake patiently my great affliction off. If I could bear it longer and not fall to quarrel with your great opposeless wills, my snuff and loathed part of nature should burn itself out. He's giving himself completely over to God. Completely 
If Edgar live, O oh bless him. Now, fellow, fare thee well. He gives up his life. He just renounced everything. If I could bear it longer, not fall. So his answer, to quarrel with your graceless, opposeless wills, my stuff and loathed part of nature should burn itself out. Um, he's going to help himself by, I mean, help that along by giving up his life. So he falls, and he thinks he's going to his death off the cliff. Edgar has put on this role. He's assisting him in this, I don't want to call it a charade, this act, this play. Um, alive or dead, ho you, sir, friend, hear you, speak. Thus might he pass, indeed, yet he revives. What are you, sir? Away and let me die. Hast thou been aught but gossamer, feathers, air, so many fathoms down, precipitating? Thou shivered like an egg. But thou dost breathe, hast heavy substance, he's got a body, probably pokes him, bleedest not, speakest, art sound. Ten masts at each make not the attitude which thou hast perpendicular fell. Thy life's a miracle, speak, so he fell this long distance and he's alive. But have I fallen or no, from the dread summit of this chalk born, look up a height. The shrill gorged lark so far cannot be seen or heard. Do but look up. So he's putting on this performance and saying it's, you know, it's ten mast high. Any, any man falling would die. You're alive. Gloucester, too well, too well. Tis above all strangeness upon the crowd of the cliff. What thing was that but parted from you like a demon, some bad thing? Un, un, uh, who are you, an unfortunate beggar? Edgar, as I stood here below me, thought his eyes were two full moons. He had a thousand noses. Horns welt and wave like the enrigid sea. It was some fiend, therefore thou happy father. Think that the clearest gods who make them honors of men's impossibilities have preserved thee. Gloucester, I do remember now, henceforth I'll bear affliction till it do cry out aloud. No matter what happens, he will bear it. I'll bear affliction till it do cry out itself, enough, enough, and die. The thing you speak of, I took it for a man. Often t'would say, the fiend, the fiend, he led me to that place. Now stop for a second. It's interesting later that when when um, Gloucester is, is um, when, when everybody's captured and Gloucester is present, he will give in to despair again. And Edgar will say, do I have to put up with this again? Because <laughs> here in this line he says, no matter what happens, um... I'll bear it out. Okay, I just here I want to take a minute because we've got. I want to look at this scene quickly with, between Lear and uh, and Gloucester. What's the function of this scene? Why is it important? Um, um, how important is this disguise? Why does Edgar do what he does? How important is it for his father and for himself? He does it because he loves his father. And it is the just and right thing to do is to help his father out of this madness, to attempt to help his father out of this madness. It is the just thing. And it's actually a beautiful thing because he has to put on two disguises, not just one. He has to, he's disguised as a right. beggar at the beginning, but then he right. has to disguise himself right. again right. as a man who finds him at the bottom of the cliff. Right. And... It's just so, and, and it's got to be gut-wrenching for him to do that and to see his father 
be at such a point that he so desperately wants to die. Like that in and of itself must have been painful for Edgar. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, he has the prescience to recognize that if he makes his father think that he died and that he could survive such a thing, that his, that life is worth living after all. Yep, yep. Yeah, that's so good. Go back to the two. Why are the two? What What's the function of the two? Why is that important that he that he puts on two disguises? Again, I, I what does that show us about Edgar and his response to his father? It, it's to convince him that he's reached another place. And I think that's that's symbolic and it's, you know, it's actual, it's literal, but it's also symbolic. He has to convince his father that he's in a different place than he actually is. Yeah. It's practical another way, too, because I think that Gloucester would likely um, be concerned with his son and, 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 and drop his feeling of despair and never address it. If his son enters the picture, it introduces a complication where he can do things with a stranger and talk to him in a way uh, that will allow him to keep his focus. Yeah. I think one of the reasons, I mean, it's just to pick up what you said, I thought, um, Heather, um, to take on two different disguises shows his ability to adjust to whatever the circumstances are in front of him. So he just can't play a role and assume it, that it's fixed. The whole point of it is he's having to respond to what's there. And what's there asks something different of him in each of those circumstances. So, I mean, it's a real, it, 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 it's a, I mean, it, it goes to pick up Bob's point that at the heart of this is something so Christian that he has to lose himself completely. Remember, he says, I can't do this anymore. Again and again, he says, I can't, I can't keep this up because he's watching his father. But he has to, and he has to, adjust to it. So he puts on one disguise at one point and another because each of those circumstances asks something different from him. So he not only has to lose himself, but he has to be resourceful in the way he gives himself to accomplish a good when a, a different set of circumstances asks something different of him. Um... I want to look at this. We're not going to have. Sorry, go ahead. Did somebody say something? Sounded like. I don't hear. Let me. Shortly after this moment, um, Lear and Gloucester come together. Um, and the two men who have not seen each other, I mean, with their. in this condition, um, for some time now. Edgar watches this con confrontation about Lane 85 and he says, O side-piercing sight, Lear, nature above art in that respect. There's something nature does that art can't imitate, even if art tries to. And the best way to put this is, we've got a play about King Lear. Imagine what, what it would have been like to actually be present physically. I mean, it gets close to what Connie was saying. To get physically close to seeing Lear and Gloucester. Lear's got a wreath on his head. He's going mad. Gloucester's blind. He thinks he's been rescued from demons. So both of these men could not be farther away than who they were. Remember, when we looked at the opening lines, Gloucester was this very glib man talking about his, you know, in this very light manner of his, this affair with this woman and the product of it in Edmund. They come together and... 
um, confront each other in a sense both men in some way blind and both men learning to see in their blindness. Gloucester, I know that voice, Lear, ha, Goneril with the white beard. They flattered me um, like a dog and told me I had white hairs in my beard ere the black ones were there. He goes on, Gloucester, the trick of that voice I do well remember. Is it not the king? I every inch a king. When I do stare, see how the subject quakes. I pardon that man's life. What was thy cause? Gloucester's blinded. I every inch a king. When I do stare, see how the subject quakes. I pardon that man's life. What was thy cause? He stood in judge over men all the time as a king. What was thy cause? Adultery? Thou shalt not die. Die for adultery? No. The wren goes to it, and the small gilded fly does lecher in my sight. Let copulation thrive, for Gloucester's bastard son was kinder to his father than my daughters got tween the lawful sheets. We're going back to this question. Gloucester was the product of an illicit relationship. Um, his daughters were lawful. And he thinks, he thinks Edmund was kinder than his daughters. He doesn't know the facts that we do. To it, luxury, pell-mell, for I lack soldiers. Behold yon simpering dame, whose face between her forks passage of snow that minces virtue, and to shake the head to hear of pleasure's name. The filchew, nor the soiled horse, goes to it with a more riotous appetite. This is what humans do. Down from the waist they are cent centaurs. The women all above. So even though women have this beauty in their outward appearance, underneath they're competitive beasts. But to the girdle do the gods inherit beneath is all the fiends. There's hell, there's darkness, there's the sub sulfurous pit, burning, scalding, stents, consumption, fi, 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 pa, pa. Give me an ounce of civet, good apothecary, sweeten my imagination. There's money for thee, Gloucester, or let me kiss thy hand, that hand. Let me wipe it first, it smells of mortality, Gloucester. O ruined piece, ruined piece of nature, this great world shall so wear out to naught. Dost thou know me? I remember thine eyes well enough. Dost thou squint it, squinny at me? No, do thy worst, blind Cupid, I'll not love. Read thou this challenge, mark but the penning of it. Gloucester, where are all thy letters, sons? I could not see. Edgar, I would not take this from report. It is, and my heart breaks. No report can do justice to this. It's too painful. Lear, read, Gloucester, what? With a case of eyes? Ho, ho, are you there with me? No eyes in your head, nor no money in your purse. Your eyes are in a heavy case, your purse in a light. You see how this world goes. I, I see it feelingly. Lear, what art mad? A man may see how this world goes with no eyes. Look white thine ear. See how yon justice rails upon yon simple thief. Hearken thine ear. Change places and handy dandy. Which is the justice? Which is the thief? Thou hast seen a farmer's dog bark at a beggar? Aye. And the creature run from the cur? There thou mightest behold the great image of authority. We're back to that fundamental question of what justice is. Um, there thou mightest behold the great image of authority. A dog's obeyed in office. 
if you have an office, you think you own justice, you can do what you want and people will move accordingly. A dog's obeyed in office, thou rascal beetle, hold thy bloody hand. Why dost thou lash that whore? Why do you, you're punishing self-righteously that woman who's a whore? And we're back in the Bible with a woman of adultery. Hold thy bloody hand. Why dost thou lash that whore? Strip, strip, st stripe thy own back. Strip thy own back. Thou hotly lust to use her hand, use her in that kind for which thou whippest her. The user hangs the cause in her through tattered clothes, small vices do appear, robes and furred gowns hide all. Plates sin with gold, and the strong lance of justice hurtless breaks. Arm in arm it in rags, a pygmy straw does pierce it. None can offend, none, I say none, I'll able them. Take that of me, my friend, who have the power to seal the accuser's lip. Get thee glass eyes, and like a scurvy politician, seem to see the things that does not. Now, 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 now. Put, um, pull off my boots harder, harder, so, O oh, matter, and impertinence and mix, reason in madness. Edgar looks at all that Lear is saying and says, reason in, in madness. If thou wait, weep my fortunes, take my eyes, I know thee well enough, thy name is glossary, goes on. Let me stop because we're almost out of time. What's Lear saying? What's happening with these two men, but particularly Lear in this, these words that are flowing passionately out of his mouth. What's he saying, Doc? He's saying that the people who are in office, um, the um, parish officer who's beating the whore um, should be whipping himself because he's whipping her for being a whore all the time wishing that he could user as a whore. Yeah. Um, so. What was like cause adultery that does not die? Die for adultery? No. The wren goes to it. The small. He's putting in everything in the context of something that goes on everywhere in nature. And he's, he's showing that he's aware of the difference between appearances, outward appearances, and what's underneath that there is a great evil going on in the world and um, part of the difficulty is that is that in the established order that is the people who make justice what they want to make it people are actually using that justice for their own gain to get away with whatever they get away with and Edgar's O matter and impertinence mixed reason in madness let me stop any any comments Melody I think I think um, that um, Lear's not advocating that people do that. If he does, he's doing it in irony. What, what he's making clear is that he's seen the hidden horrors behind an established world, the respectable world. The behind this respectability are all these sins, and people use their office, their power, to get away with them. Um, that's why Edgar says, Oh, matter and impertinence mixed. Impertinency, re, um, reason, and madness. So Lear's Lear's come to a point where he's using words, he's saying things that lots of people wouldn't understand. But it shows his awareness of 
the world that he left behind, that it was full of this corruption, um, that he himself partakes in it. I mean, he's den- he's particularly identifying it with those people in authority. Um, and Gloucester shares in it, O rune piece of nature, this great world shall so wear out to naught, dost thou know me? I mean, both men... Um, have been stripped of everything, crucified in some ways. Um, they're entering a phase that lots of people would say is just madness, period, and let it go. But the irony is that um, they're showing in their comments of, about the awful condition of the world a reason, a wisdom that the world that they left behind didn't have. I think Bob's comment about the cross and the you know the mysteries is pretty pertinent here. We're we're moving. Lear isn't there yet. I mean, we he we still have to get to Dover Beach. That's where we'll pick up when we meet again. But but clearly he he's in a tormented state, far acutely aware and suffering from his awareness of this condition. The injustices of the world, the way, the way people in power use their authority to, to get away with the things they do. And that speaks directly to his own sense of himself. So e- even if we see him, you know, coming, leaving Reagan when he says, oh, reason not the need, and then railing at his daughters and going through a mock trial, I think that mock trial was absolutely essential. We're watching a man in anguish slowly coming to sight um, in in what appears to most people as a kind of madness. But go ahead, make your whatever, we've, we're out of time, so any last comments, I'm glad to raise questions or objections or whatever your thoughts are at this point. Um, Lear's not there yet. When we get to Dover Beach, he and Cordelia, he's going to say, I'm on a wheel of fire. So the torment, the torment, <laughs> Bob's, Bob's point is, so, to the, so goes to the heart of this play. This cross goes on because we've been watching two men suffer for an extended period. Um, it, it's like Achilles, far more. I mean, it, it's the same thing. They're isolated from their world. They've entered an anguish, a madness that isolates them. They're in a darkness. And they are because they see things that other people don't see, precisely because of their anguish. And so there's a real cross that's being carried here, and we're not at the end of it. It'll continue. It'll continue right up to the end of the play. So any any thoughts <coughs> about um, about where we are, what Shakespeare's doing? I don't want to answer this question, but you know that I said it was a sort of challenging question, you guys, that I'm going to claim that this play, even though it's set nine centuries before Christ, is, is one of the most Catholic plays <laughs> in, my, in my short years of life, in my existence. But Sure, I can see that. Wow. Any melody you look... Like you're troubling over quite any Heather, anybody, Bob, Karen, Kay, 
any of you? I'm not troubling. I think you've given us a lot to think about. So thank you. Oh, good. Listen, it's it's time. I mean, we, this is a lot. This is a painful play. It's it's so human. It's and it's so instructive. I mean, it you know what Edgar does with his father is something I wish more of us could do. You know, in our marriages and our families and. There's just a lot here that is so profound, so wise, um, in suffering. So I'm glad to leave it here. But here on this on this note, um, we will we will finish Lear when we come back. We'll do the last act, and then we'll do uh, Pericles and Winter's Tale. So I I would encourage you to read Pericles over Christmas break because Pericles is a it's not a tragedy. It's a romance. It's a sacramental play. And so is Winter's Tale. Pericles is much lighter, and what happens at the end is just stunning. So it's a it's a lighter play. We'll we'll do those after Lear. Um, so you might want to get a jump on them and read them. They're they're wonderful plays, or even watch them. If you if you get a hold, I'll send you a picture of the Winner's Tale that I know of. If you can get a hold of it, watch it. It's a it's a beautiful beautiful play, stunningly beautiful play. Um, and at this point, I'd just like to say. Um, we're coming to the end of a year. I, I cannot tell you how much of this has meant to me. I mean, it, it's, yeah. um, um, it's a gift to me, and I hope it is for you guys. Yeah. We've, we've done a lot of work together, you know, reading these things, and I'm grateful that we do this together. I, I don't know what you guys feel about it, but I take a strength from what we're doing. I just feel we're a part of something together, and I'm... I'm glad to be able to lean on you guys to know that that we are doing this. It's a source of great comfort and strength to me. So um, I'm glad for the year, genuinely glad. Um, you guys have a, um, um, a blessed Christmas season. I, it's a tough season because expectations go through the roof. I hope during the season that all of you will be able to step back somehow, step back from this world and do it giving yourself to a kind of peace um, so when christmas comes it'll mean more to all of us so all of you have a, a blessed christmas season and a and a good christmas and a good new year's and be safe be safe in new year's okay you too, Bob. yep you too merry christmas everyone yep merry thanks christmas. all of you merry christmas all of you guys okay <laughs> see see you next year that's right. Okay. <laughs>